Welcome to this, the first uh, of the Ramon lectures, uh, the Philip Ramon lectures, I should say, in History and International Affairs, organized by LSE Ideas for this academic year. And first thing I want to say is thanks to the generosity of Emmanuel Roman, who uh, has funded these lectures uh, over now uh, nine years, I believe. Before introducing a speaker and the topic this evening, I should say something about the chair. The chair was funded through uh, Manny Roman, of great generosity, and I'd also like to say great vision. And our first holder of the chair uh, was Paul Kennedy. The second was the great uh, historian of China, Maoism, Chen Jian. Gilles Capel was our third. Neil Ferguson, a person I'm sure one or two of you may have heard of. Uh, was our fourth, judging by your laughs, you have heard of him. Uh, Ram Guha, the great historian of India, and great Indian historian of India, I should say, was our fifth. And Applebaum was our sixth. Timothy Snyder was our seventh. And last year, Matt Connolly was our eighth. So, Ian, you're number nine. <laughs> Sorry, we wanted to get you to number ten, but, you know, 10. there we are. There we are. Anyway, so it's wonderful to, for, this, uh, for this great institution at the LSE, uh, uh, to continue. Uh, I almost say I don't need to say too much about the speaker this evening, but I'm bound to say something. Um, Ian Morris is currently the Willard Professor of Classics at Stanford University. He's a renowned historian and award-winning author who studies, as you can see from this evening's title, long-term trends in history to understand the vital issues facing the world today. He engages with fields such as uh, archaeology, uh, linguistics, geography, anthropology, and genetics to analyze 20,000 years of history. Ian uh, received his doctorate from Cambridge uh, University here in England and held positions at the University of Chicago and Cambridge. He's held several research awards, including a Guggenheim and Andrew Carnegie Fellowship and has won a Dean's Award for Excellence in Teaching and several literary prizes. He's also a Fellow of the British Academy, the Society of Antiquaries and Secular Policy Institute, and is a contributing editor at Stratfor, a strategic forecasting company. As you will see from tonight's lecture, Ian thinks big. Uh, a theory of everything evolution, history, and the shape of things to come. Now, if you think that's big, you wait until Tuesday, 8th of December. Each age gets the great power it needs. 20,000 years of international relations. Ian, congratulations. <laughs> and then we get each age gets the bloodshed it needs. A mere 20,000 years of violence will come on the 9th of February. And if you like the number 20,000, we'll have it again on the 15th of March because each age gets the inequality it needs, 20,000 years of hierarchy. Ian Morris is a big thinker about big issues who combines several disciplines. Indeed, I think, smashes the disciplinary boundaries, which I think have been such an impediment to intellectual life in British universities over the last 20 or 30 years. Ian, it is fantastic to welcome you here to the LSE to lecture this evening on a theory of everything evolution, history, and the shape of things to come. Could you give a very fine LSE welcome?
Ah, well, well, thank you very much, and thank you to Mick Cox for that wonderful introduction, and um, thank you also to, uh, maybe I'm not supposed to say thank you to Arne Westad, who's now left, no, but um, no, no, sort of thanks to him for inviting me here in the first place, and my thanks to Emilia Knight, who has taken such good care of me in getting this organised, in spite of my making every attempt to make it impossible, uh, she's been wonderfully patient, and thanks to Bastian Bauman, who's done such a great job the last uh, 24 hours or so, at preventing me from getting lost and going to the wrong places at numerous attempts. And thank you to all of you for coming here this evening. I'm told it's going to start raining on us soon, so I'm sorry about that, but uh, you're in here dry for the moment. Um, so, okay, well this evening I come before you with a, a modest proposal, a theory of everything in, I'm told, about 50 minutes or so. Um, and the, the, the reason why I'm doing this is actually even less modest than the title. The reason I'm talking about this is because of something somebody once said about one of the books I wrote, which made me decide I need to give this talk. Um, someone who I've now been assured you, you all know of, a former Roman professor here, Neil Ferguson. A few years ago, um, oh, I should say, actually, uh, in case you hadn't heard, Neil Ferguson, I'm glad to say, has now, uh, to make up for Harvard hiring Arne Westad, Neil has now left Harvard and is going to become to Stanford full-time at the Hoover Institution starting next fall. Um, but a few years ago, the good people at Profile Books, my British publisher, um, they were publishing a book I'd written, and they were looking around for people to write of inflated blurbs to go on the, the cover of the book, and they persuaded Neil to write one. And he described this book, and this is why I say this is not very modest start of the lecture. He described this book as the nearest thing to a unified field of theory of history we are ever likely to get. And then he says he loved it. Now, that was a, a very kind thing to say about the book. It's, uh, it's obviously not true, like all of these blurbs. And in fact, with blurbs, one of the things I've discovered, in my experience, just around the time you get to the point you start believing your publicity blurbs. This is about the time your colleagues start inviting you to lunch and talking about the joys of retirement. So, um, yeah, obviously not true. And it would actually also be rather sad if it were true, if this were as close as we were going to get. Um, but the reason I bring this up is that Neil's blurb made me start wondering, you know, what would a, a unified field theory of history, a theory of everything historical, what would that look like? And this is basically what I want to talk about this evening. Uh, the, the idea of a unified field theory, as I'm sure most of you will know, this goes back to Einstein physics. And his idea was a, a theory that would unite the general theory of relativity with the theory of magnetism, bring the two fields together and be a kind of a theory of everything. And uh, I gather it's only in the last 30 years or so that this notion of a theory of everything has uh, become, begun to be a popular idea. There's a paper published in Nature in 1986 by a physicist John Ellis, and he, he popularised this term, a theory of everything, but he was clearly initially doing it slightly tongue-in-cheek. The paper was called The Superstring, a theory of everything or of nothing. And, but, but this has sort of gradually caught on um, over the last 30 years and become quite mainstream now, the idea that there could be a theory of everything in physics. And um, the definition of the theory of everything... Um, my students tell me that Wikipedia is the only official source of definition. So I looked it up on Wikipedia, and this tells me that a unified field theory is a single, all-encompassing, coherent theoretical framework of physics that fully explains and links together all physical aspects of the universe. 
So I, I got thinking about what would a, a historical theory of everything look like. And so very cleverly, I changed like three words in this definition. Um, single all-encompassing coherent theoretical framework of history that fully explains and links together all historical aspects of, then modestly now, the world, not the universe. So this is what I think a, a theory of everything in history ought to look like. Now, this evening, I'm basically going to talk about three things connected to the idea of a, a theory of everything in history. And three questions I'm going to ask you. What would a unified field theory of history look like? Um, what would a unified field, the field, I can't even say it, field theory of history before? And then who wants a unified field theory of history? And I'm going to tackle these questions in reverse order because I think the first two kind of put you on the path to coming up with answers to the third. So I'm going to tackle them in um, reverse order. And I think the answers for a historical theory of everything are actually rather similar to the answers physicists have when they ask the same questions about their own theories of everything. So who wants a unified field theory of history? Everyone. I think this is clearly the answer here. Now, the reason I say this is that I think everyone, not only does everyone want a unified field theory of history, everyone's already got one. I think this is the, the big thing. We already have the many, many theories of everything in history. It's just that they tend generally to be implicit and, on the whole, our theories of everything are not very good. So that's the first thing. Everyone wants a unified field theory of history. What would it be for? Well, it's partly for fun. We like these sorts of things. It's partly for explanation, because I think it tells you a lot. And also, I think one of the big things with the idea of a theory of everything, it's about prediction, where things might go next. Now, third question. Um, what will a unified field theory of history look like? Once again, like the case in physics, I can confidently say we don't know. We don't know what it would look like. But we have ideas. And um, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, some of these ideas this evening. I'm going to leave this picture up for a little while um, uh, for reasons that will actually sort of become clear as we go on. But, um, there's been a lot of discussion recently about theories of everything in history. And it's become quite popular to talk about these ideas as, uh, people call it big history. Um, the idea that we can um, encompass everything going back to the origins of humanity, to the Big Bang itself, in a single story about the development of the universe. And it synthesizes um, history and archaeology, anthropology, biology, chemistry, physics. Um, the most developed versions, it really does encompass absolutely everything. Now, tonight I want to share my thoughts on what um, such a theory of everything might potentially look like. And I hope I'm able to convince at least some of you. Because if I can't, that means the LSE has made a terrible mistake in inviting me here to do the Roman lectures. Because the rest of it, it's, it's, it's going to be the same old, same old the whole the rest of the way. So hopefully at least some of this will seem not entirely crazy to you. And I'm going to suggest that... Um, a theory of everything is actually a necessary, although not a sufficient, part of any kind of historical explanation or strategic analysis. That thinking about any big problems in the world depend on us having theories of everything. We do already have theories of everything, lots and lots of them, but we need much better ones. And that's a, the basic plan. So, okay, uh, first of these questions. Who wants a unified field theory of history? Now, when you start looking at the, the, what people have said about this in the past, at first glance, it seems very much like it's gone in cycles. That, um, say, in, in Europe, in the 18th century, 
um, theories of everything historical start to become quite popular in the 18th century. Um, in the 19th century, they become very popular. They remain very popular into the early 20th century. The late 20th century, they become quite unpopular. Then they started becoming more popular again just recently. And that, I think, I mean, that, that description, I mean, that seems to fit one particular theory of everything, which is that everything historical is cyclical. We just go round and around. The same basic patterns get repeated again and again, um, just in slightly different forms each time. But that, I think, would actually be a little bit mistaken as a description of what's been going on. It's not so much that we've had cycles of when people want theories of everything and when they don't. More, I think, it's that we've had cycles in what people think a theory of everything should be like. Because, and again, this, I mean, I, I think this just seems obvious. Rejecting a theory of everything is in itself a theory of everything. And say the most sort of influential rejections of theories of everything, say the uh, you know, postmodernist criticism of the 1980s and 90s, the, the idea that we should always be suspicious of meta narratives, any big stories always will raise our hackles. Um, everything is radically contingent, chance drives everything. There are radical discontinuities between one aspect of life and another. Um, that's a theory of everything. It tells you everything is contingent, everything is accidental. And all of these grand theories are always theories of everything, even if we never make them explicit. And any time I think we, you know, we think about how the world works, we are always falling back on some kind of historical theory of everything. Some people think everything has been cyclical through history. Some people think everything is radically discontinuous. Some people think history is a long story of decline. Others think history is a long story of progress, whether it's progress toward God or progress toward prosperity or progress toward a worker's paradise. doesn't matter. Um, history is a long story of progress. And um, John Maynard Keynes, one of these quotations he's supposed to have said, although no one's ever traced it back to an actual source as far as I know, he's supposed to have said that um, any man who says he doesn't believe in theories is always found to be in the grip of some long-dead theorist. And I suspect that's true of theories of everything. So in some ways, um, you know, these things have always been around. Everyone has always had a theory of everything. But I think definitely there are things that have changed in the history of theories of everything. And one of the obvious things is the amount of commitment there is at any moment to having explicit theories and you know, focusing on making the development of big historical theories the goal of what you're doing. That's gone up and down over time. A second thing which I think has very clearly changed is the nature of these theories. Since the 18th century in particular, I think uh, rather new kinds of theories of everything have become popular. Now, probably every society, certainly everyone we know of, people have had theories of how the world was created, or why the gods made the world, what history means. Probably this is a human universal, I think. But uh, there are some significant changes over time in what these theories have looked like. And one of the big changes, it goes back all the way to the origins of writing. And I think almost as soon as writing gets invented, about five and a half thousand years ago, one of the things people start doing is picking out one period in the past and saying that period was the age when everybody got it right. That is the exemplary time. And the classic example would probably be um, the veneration of Confucius in, in Chinese imperial culture for thousands of years. You pick on one age and say these people got it right. They, they had everything down and history is all about pre preserving and passing on and perfecting the legacy of this, this golden age in the past. 
And that, I think, is something you find in complex literate societies all over the world right up till the 18th century. I think it's not until the 1720s that you really see a radical break with that. And at that point, um, it seems to me, a number of people in Western Europe began to feel that we now know so much about the rest of the world, that this kind of exemplary theory of history, we know it just doesn't make sense anymore. We need a different kind of theory of how history works. And people begin seeking what, in loose terms, I think we could call kind of evolutionary theories of history, global-scale theories, ones that, at least in principle, can be tested against some kind of evidence. Now, the problem with these 18th century theories, as a lot of people saw at the time, was that they were just terrible. People didn't, they knew enough to reject the old kind of theory, didn't know enough to actually erect a new grand story that was convincing. Um, When people started up making these theories, they called them philosophical history. The idea was that their history is more philosophical than the old kind. By the end of the 18th century, people have started calling it conjectural history. They focus on the fact that it's actually all made up. It may be philosophical, but none of it is actually true. And these ideas drop out of um, favour very, very much. But over the 19th century, the data available, the nature of the theorising, they're getting better and better, and new versions are constantly coming back. There's not so much, again, not so much they're cycling through uh, theories of everything and no theories. It's that they're repeatedly testing the theories of everything that they've got and coming up with what seem to be better and better versions. So in the 1720s, you get the rise of philosophical history. It's to fall out of favour in the 1790s. In the 1850s, you get what people often call classical evolutionism, falls out of favour by the 1910s. In the 1950s, um, what archaeologists call neo-evolution, neo-evolutionism, starts to fall out of favour in the 1980s. And then we've got a new version. I don't think anybody's got a really um, fancy name for yet. But since the 1990s, I think we've seen a growing interest in big, somewhat evolutionary theories of everything. And of course here, in the, I'm uh, bundling tens of thousands of scholars into just four categories. There are lots and lots of exceptions who actually tend to be the interesting people. But I think we we can see this sort of pattern. We see a a professional division of labour developing as well, that um, around the time of the collapse of philosophical history, historians start distinguishing themselves as an academic group of specialists. And one of the things that they tend to specialise in is saying that there is no theory of everything. Uh, Historians will still regularly, I for many years was a member of history departments, historians will regularly tell you that the lesson of history is that there is no lesson of history. What we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. And my colleagues were slightly baffled as to why all of our history majors at Stanford were defecting to the International Relations Programme, which tells them there is a theory of international relations, and if you do well on your tests on it, you will get a good job that pays you for the rest of your life. And we could not understand where our students had all gone. But anyway, so there's been this development over time in what theories of everything look like. Um, second, Second thing I wanted to talk about, what is a theory of everything for? Well, I think thanks to work in a number of disciplines, I think we are now beginning to get a sense of why, why people like these things, and particularly to work that done by psychologists and anthropologists. And so I would say a theory of everything in history, it's really it's for three things. 
Um, first thing is that it's fun. We like this stuff. Um, and one of the things that we, we now know, human brains work through narrative and plotment. So, you know, fancy way of saying that we tell stories. We make sense of things by telling stories about them that have beginnings, middles, and ends. And because Aristotle is the first guy to like, formalise this in a theory, but people have always known this. We make sense of things through stories. Neuroscience is now joining up with literary criticism uh, as people increasingly begin to understand that the structure of stories is part of the structure of the human brain. It's human to tell stories about things, big or small things. Um, all cultures have had historical grand narratives of some kind. Again, I say this because we like it. We enjoy the big stories. Um, and if you have any doubts of that, just look at the success of Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs and Steel, which has sold more than nine million copies. And that's a lot for a history book. And, uh, and I'm sure, uh, how, how many of you have read Guns, Germs and Steel? Just so curious. Oh, so many of you still need to go out there and boost um, my friend Jared's retirement funds. You should get right onto that. Well, I mean, more recently, um, Yuval Noah Harari's book that came out last year, Sapiens. I mean, this again, I don't know how many, it sold a lot of copies. We like these grand narratives. So, okay, one thing is we just like, um, we just like the, the big-scale theories of history. Second thing, though, I think it goes beyond just liking this stuff. Um, narrative emplotments of big stories constitute explanations of things. We explain things by putting them into stories. We say that A happened before B and A caused B. Um, we, we say you know, World War II is B. World War II happens because Hitler was a monster. A, there's a nice narrative emplotment of the shape of the 20th century. The narrative allows us to speculate about causal connections. In fact, without a storyline, you can't really speculate about causal connections. We say, if we think A caused B, then, well, what happens if we don't have A? Do we not get B at that point? Um, what happens if you don't have Hitler? Hitler dies in 1918, say, as he very well could have done. Hitler dies in 1918. Do we still get B? Um, does World War II happen? Or do we get C? Do we get something else entirely? Is C, is C something better or worse than B? I mean, like maybe if we hadn't got B, if World War II hadn't have happened, Europe would have turned into one giant village all sitting around the campfire singing Kumbaya or something. Or maybe it wouldn't. Maybe we would have got a, a major international war 20 years later when we had half a dozen nuclear powers. Maybe, in fact, Hitler was the lesser of the available evils. And, of course, we can only think about these things by plotting competing storylines. Um, narrative helps us explain history. I think this is a, a central thing that historians have always known. And long-term global theories of everything help us explain the history of the whole world. And this, to a great extent, I think, is what these very, very successful um, theories of everything we've seen in the last few years have been doing, been competing with different narratives about what the shape of world history means. Third thing, I think, a, a unified field theory of history is for, is for prediction. And this, again, something historians don't really like to talk about all that much. But we, what we're basically doing is identifying patterns in the past. We're telling a story, identifying patterns. We are identifying causes for what happened, which is the explanatory part. And then we're projecting it forward. We're, we're forecasting what potentially could come next. And again, this is condemned by most mainstream historians, but it's something we all do all the time. We make decisions about what we think the future is going to be like based on our knowledge of the past. 
And on the whole, when people don't do that, we don't say, oh, you're being a good person living up to the standards of professional history. We say you're an idiot on the whole. I mean, when, when the US invaded Iraq in 2003, very, very few people sat around saying, boy, I wish George W. Bush had spent less time reading Iraqi history, and then he never would have got us into this mess. On the whole, our common sense assumption, which I think is right, is that knowing about the past puts you in a better position to talk about the future. Now, this sort of thinking was also roundly condemned by a, another great light of the LSE, Karl Popper, who, who equated this with what he called historicism, and said this is the kind of thinking that you get among totalitarians. This sort of historicism, thinking big patterns in the past and thinking you know where history is going. Now, I'm a great fan of Karl Popper, but I think on this point he was only partially right. That the problem that totalitarians, well, problem, totalitarians have a lot of problems, but in this respect, the problem totalitarians have is not that they have a theory of everything, because I believe everyone has a theory of everything. It's the particular kinds of theories of everything that totalitarians tend to go for, which almost always involve the idea that if you just liquidate some group of people, everything is going to be fine. Whether it's a group defined by class or race or all kinds of other possibilities. Liquidate them and it'll all be fine. Now that, it seems to me, is not the only available kind of theory of everything. Um, more broadly, I think the, the problem with the, most of the theories of everything that we see is that they tend to be a bit on the naive side. They tend to be very much driven by what logicians would call formal analogies, where you, sort of, you look at one thing that's happened in the past and see some consequences and say, oh, well, if that thing starts to come up again, we're going to see the same consequences. So you look at the, the rise of Germany 100 years ago and say, oh, well, that seems to lead directly into World War I. And then you look at the rise of China in recent years and say, oh, well, obviously that's going to lead directly into World War III. And it's, a, it's a common kind of thinking in, in strategic forecasting circles. But obviously, things are not quite that simple. Um, um, again, LSE scholars know well, and, um, your own Christopher Coker wrote a wonderful book um, came out just last year called Improbable War. Look at all the complexities of that kind of analogical thinking. Although your own David Stevenson also co-edited um, another wonderful book called An Improbable War about the outbreak of World War I. So maybe actually there is something to that analogy. But anyway, the, the, the point I think is that um, useful deployment of theories of everything is a much more complicated kind of thing than we normally assume. I think the extreme case, one of my favourite theory of everything examples, is in Isaac Asimov's trilogy, the Foundation Trilogy, which I'm sure many of you will have read, one of the classics of science fiction. If you have not read Asimov's Foundation, you really must go home and do this. But this is all organised around this character who dies extremely early on in the story. A guy named Harry Seldon, who is an academic who develops his own academic field, which he calls psychohistory. And um, psychohistory is this thing where you, you gather all of the data in the world and you put it into your huge computer and it predicts exactly what is going to happen in the future, down to the last detail. And then through the rest of the books, every time there's a major crisis in the world, that the universe that emerges after the collapse of the galactic empire, you go and you switch on the computer and this hologram of Harry Seldon comes up and he tells you what to do. Now, this is the sort of thing that makes um, predictive theories of everything uh, sort of a laughing stuck with many people. Um, that is not quite what I have in mind here. It seems to me that the value of a theory of everything is usually not so much in the answers it provides to the questions that we're asking, as in thinking about why there are so many different answers and why the different theories of everything compete um, and contrast and conflict with each other so much. Um, 
So rather than asking, you know, if A led to B in 1914, is that exactly the same thing going to happen in 2015 or something? Thinking about, well, how could things have gone differently in 1914? What range of outcomes were there when you're dealing with the rise of revisionist power? Um, to what extent are these things similar or different from what we're dealing with now? Okay, last of the questions I want to raise. Um, what will a historical theory of everything look like? Um, uh, we don't know, the, the short answer. But we don't know, I think in the same way as physicists don't know what a theory of everything will look like. I, I would say in both cases, there's one um, leading contender uh, for the, being the dominant theory of everything. In the case of physics, it's uh, string theory, of course. And then many, many rivals saying that the leading contender is complete nonsense. Um, in the historical realm, I'd say at least in the English, English language speaking world, the, the leading contender for theory of everything is broadly evolutionary theories of history. Um, not necessarily true outside the English speaking world. I've been having a very interesting email conversation with a Chinese historian about this sort of theories of everything that are becoming popular in China, which are very, very different from the Anglophone ones. Now, the, um, the Anglophone sort of evolutionary theories of everything, they are all about making conventional history part of a larger study, combining it with other fields, and particularly in the sciences. And the general attitude is that history is too important to be left to historians. Other people have got to do the history for them. And the, the idea is that they're looking for theories that operate on, on every level, from the, the tiniest little detail. It must be able to explain the most micro of micro history activities, then all the way up to the biggest questions imaginable. And for me, the, the question I think is the biggest question imaginable is um, what I like to call the 100,000-year question, which I think any theory of everything must explain. Now, what do I mean by the 100,000-year question? I have to be a little bit careful talking about the 100,000-year question uh, because my niece, Dr. Laura Lewis, is sitting here in the front row. She just defended her um, doctoral dissertation at Oxford on uh, basically about the archaeology of the stuff that happens not long after 100,000 years ago on this scale of things. So she actually knows the facts here as I just make this stuff up. But the 100,000-year question, and Laura, I hope, will correct me afterwards in private, not in front of everyone. As I understand it, the 100,000-year question, what I mean by this? This is 100,000 years ago. There are very few modern humans in the world. Um, there's maybe I don't know, 20, 30,000 people vary in their estimates, a tiny number of modern humans. The biggest group of humans is probably a couple dozen people, uh, the biggest permanent group. Almost all of the modern humans are in Africa. Um, life expectancy at birth for the modern humans is in the low 20 years. Um, the typical modern human consumes four or 5,000 kilocalories of energy each day. Um, all modern humans are illiterate, and the, the standard of living they've got, I mean, it's slightly nonsensical converting these things into modern terms, but the standard of living they've got, we're probably talking something like an income equivalent to about one US dollar per day for people 100,000 years ago. Now, of course, there's more than 7 billion of us. Um, we have cities with more than 35 million people living in them. Um, every habitable niche on the planet has been inhabited. We've even walked on the moon. Um, globally, life expectancy at birth is above 60 years. Um, in rich countries, in California, where I live, uh, the typical person burns through 230,000 kilocalories of energy per day, which is quite something. 85% um, of the world's population is literate, according to the UN definition. And the average global income is about $25 per day. Now, that is extraordinary. Now, that is what historians should be explaining. If history can't explain this, historians are not doing their job properly. Now, the other side. 
while we've been doing that, we've also gone from being hunter-gatherers living off completely renewable wild resources to pumping two and a half billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every single year. We've changed the chemistry of the air and the chemistry of the oceans. One other species of plant or animal goes extinct every 20 minutes. And we have enough weapons to kill everyone, potentially all life on the planet if we chose to do so. So this 100,000-year story, I mean, it's either the greatest triumph or the greatest disaster in the history of the planet. And again, this I think we really ought to be able to explain. How do we get from A to B in 100,000 years? Um, which ending is the most likely? Um, and well, that, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. That's what we need to be explaining. And I'm going to be talking about different aspects of those two questions in the next three lectures that I do, three different aspects. But this evening, what I want to do with the rest of my time is... Um, sketch out what I think are the three emerging elements of a good theory of everything, a good answer to the 100,000-year question. So three, three elements, just a, a one-word answer for each of these three elements. What are the three things? The first of them, I think, the, the, the first element of any good theory of everything has got to be biology. Now, the reason I say this, um, you know, we humans, we're animals just like all the other animals on Earth. We evolved biologically just like every other species of, of animal. Like every other species of life, we, we do our stuff by capturing energy from the environment around us and converting it into more of ourselves. We reproduce ourselves through time by capturing energy. Like other species, we evolved through natural selection. Um, random mutations, some of which flourish and some, some of which don't. The ones that flourish, the ones that pay off, spread through the population, the others don't. Um, we evolved through linked processes of competition and cooperation. This is just the same as all the other animals. We are the outcome of the evolution that was going on in a very specific time and place. So the band of lands around the uh, great rainforest of Central Africa over roughly the last eight million years. In that particular zone, at that particular time, evolving, primates that evolved towards having bigger brains got a big payoff for this. Now, I, I say that, I want to stress this because, I mean, it might seem obvious, well, of course having a big brain is going to have a payoff. Of course species will evolve in that direction. Actually, not the case at all. Um, I mean, any, any evolutionary adaptation, it's only going to spread if it pays for itself, if it allows you to get more energy from the environment around you than it itself uses. If it doesn't, it's not going to catch on and spread. Um, and brains are really, really expensive. Like your brain, um, your brain, it counts about 2% of your body weight, but it burns up about 20 20% of the energy you use. The human brain is hugely expensive. And in that particular niche, around the edges of the rainforest, that was an adapt adaptation that really paid off well. Um, the bigger brains spread through the, the population of primates, eventually producing modern humans. So a theory of everything must be based in biology because we are just like all the other animals except for the fact that we are completely unlike all the other animals. And that's the second element in the story. It's got to have biology, but it's also got to have culture. This is the distinctive human thing. The big brain makes it possible for us, uh, with only some trivial exceptions, us alone in the world, so far as we know, alone in the universe. We're the only things able to create cultures that change and evolve in a cumulative kind of way. And people define culture in all sorts of different ways. Um, for these purposes, the definition I think is most useful is one I take from 
a couple of biological anthropologists, Richardson and Boyd, in a book called Not By Genes Alone, they call it information capable of affecting individuals' behaviour that they acquire from other members of their species through teaching, imitation and other forms of social transmission. And we are so good at this that we are actually able to have cultures that evolve and change cumulatively through time. And cultural evolution, in some ways it's like biological evolution, but in some ways it really isn't. It's only partly random. It's purposive, it's directive. By biological standards, it's very rapid and it's cumulative. And so, say, I mean, something, something culturally evolutionary we did. About 45,000 years ago, people start wandering into Siberia. Now, Siberia is really cold, as I'm sure you know. 45,000 years ago, it was during the Ice Ages, even colder. Um, any other species of animals, if they'd wandered into Siberia, they would have had to stop until natural selection led them to evolve to be furry. And then when you get furry enough, maybe you can live in Siberia. We don't have to wait to get furry. I mean, we can, but we don't have to. We can start sewing clothes, which is what they did around that point. We are capable of cultural evolution, which moves extremely rapidly by biological standards. So similarly, after the end of the Ice Age, about 11,500 years ago, we, we stumble into agriculture. We have the agricultural revolution because we are able to do that. No other other species of animals can do something quite like that. When farming villages begin to reach the limits of what can be done, um, that way of life, people figure out how to live in cities with governments, writing, all these sorts of things. About five and a half thousand years ago, that starts. When agrarian states reach their limits, people figure out an industrial revolution. That's about 200 years ago. Cultural evolution seems to be it works rather like biological evolution, but not exactly like it. But it does work through competition, cooperation, and through trade-offs between one thing uh, and another, and people uh, going in the direction that seems to them to be the most successful. So I think a theory of everything, it's got to be biological, but it's also got to be cultural. And so a, a theory of everything, it has like sub-theories within it of biology and culture. And the cultural sub-theory has to have sub-sub-theories of things like demography, so bridging the two, innovation, institutions, beliefs, all these kind of sub-sub-theories within your theory of everything. Now, genetics and archaeology both suggest that People are pretty much the same, modern humans are pretty much the same animal wherever in the world you go. We have some differences, but they're very, very trivial. Um, the expectation might be that if people are all the same everywhere, surely their societies will be all pretty much the same everywhere. Now, obviously they're not. And this leads me to the, the third thing, which I think is a, a crucial variable in a theory of everything, which is geography. People, I think, are much the same everywhere. The ways, are, I'll come back to this in a moment, the ways our groups develop are much the same everywhere, but the places where they do the developing are not the same. And that, I would say, is the big driver in um, why, uh, why we get such varied societies around the world. And at this point, I finally come to what my theory of everything is. I'm sure you've all been waiting for this moment. Here is my theory of everything. This explains everything you could possibly want to know about history. Yes, good. I'm glad you appreciate it. Now, let me, so let me just talk, talk for a moment about my chart. Um, so what we've got here, we've got, uh, we, we've got a graph of a kind here. On the vertical axis, oh, I've got a pointer, haven't I? Um, on the vertical axis over here, we have years before present, um, which I put, up there, put it up before present rather than BC, AD, partly because um, archaeologists sometimes like to do that, partly because I'm not skilled enough with Excel to actually make my graph split and go AD. So, so it's, if you want an actual date, just knock 2,000 off all 
the dates on there. That's what we got on the vertical axis. Horizontal axis, which I will point at, even though I assume you know where it is, um, along here, we've got 13 regions around the world. We've got um, Eurasia at this end, the western end of Eurasia, southern Asia, eastern Asia, then uh, three regions within the Americas, then PNG, just a shorthand for New Guinea. Then we are off in Africa, the Sahel, the, the band of grasslands around, along the southern edge of the Sahara Desert, southern Africa, the Sahara itself. And then we get over to the steppes, the Eurasian steppes, the grasslands running from Manchuria over roughly to Hungary. And then we've got Siberia and Australia over at the extreme end. So 13 columns, and each one you sort of look up for what is going on in each region at the, the particular date on the vertical axis. And then we have this explosion, again, thanks to Excel, this explosion of colour um, for my graph. And if you can read the little writing all the way over on the right-hand side, um, the big blue zone at the top end, the oldest period on the graph, that is the age of foragers, of hunter-gatherers. And so you look on the graph, and that shows you at what point in history is foraging the dominant way of living in each of these different regions in the world. And then the bright, garish red is, is herders, people who live uh, mostly in a pastoralist way, herding animals from one watering hole to another. Then we get the, the, the lime green colour. That is cultivators, a word archaeologists are rather fond of, for people to an early stage of farming. Um, then we get purple, which is like full-blown farming villages. Then we get, um, I don't know, well, not sure what colour to call this, but whatever colour this is, uh, which I'm calling archaic states, simple forms of states. Then we get this orangey colour, which is uh, the classical states of the old world. And then we get medieval and modern stuff as well. But so the, the idea is this graph, you, you look at the graph, to tells you what is going on in each of these regions around the world at different points in the world. Now, I've got a lot to say about this graph, believe me. I'm, I'm writing a new book just about this graph, but I promise you I'll keep it short. You won't get the whole thing. Um, again, also another reason to keep it short, I have to be extremely careful on this because sitting in the second row, we've got Professor Steve Shannon from UCL, former director of the Institute of Archaeology there, who knows more about just about everything on this graph uh, than I do. And actually, I don't feel bad about that because he knows more about everything on this graph than just about anybody does. So that makes it okay. But again, must be very careful what I say. Now, what I think this graph is saying to us is that we are seeing a rather similar human story unfolding everywhere in the world. And that story is that Everywhere they possibly can, people have tried throughout history to extract as much energy from the environment around them as they possibly can, as much energy as their environment will allow. People started domesticating plants and animals right after the end of the Ice Age. Um, over here, around about 9,500 BC, in what we now call the Middle East. Um, the date at which people start domesticating plants and animals, moving into the green zone uh, on the graph, basically depends on the geography, the, the part of the world they live in, the density of resources available, plants and animals that can be domesticated. So it starts in the Middle East around 9500 BC. That's where the densest concentrations are. A bit later in South and East Asia, that's 7500. A bit later still in the Andes and Mexico in the New World. Later still in other places. And on we go, sort of moving down to the right. Basically, one way to look at this graph is say, as you go from left to right, the resources for domestication, for agriculture, become increasingly sparse as you move from left to right. And that's why I arrange the geographical regions in this slightly peculiar order to make that pattern, uh, make that pattern apparent. 
So they, they start down this path at, at different dates, depending on the density of resources available. Basically, the easier it is to start domesticating and becoming farmers, the earlier people start doing it. Once they start down the path, they tend to follow um, rather similar rhythms toward increasing levels of organisation. So in Eurasia, typically it's about 2,000 years to go from first cultivation toward domestication. Three or four thousand years more to go to cities and states. Another one and a half, two and a half thousand years will get you to the classical empires. In the Americas, different plants and animals, different geography, it's a, a slower process initially. Four to five thousand years, uh, you're living in the pale green zone. Then just one and a half to two thousand years in the, uh, the purple domestication zone. Sub-Saharan Africa, New Guinea, different story again, different plants and animals. Sahara and the steppes, very different story, because there you can't really start down this path. Um, there's nothing you can grow on the steppes in prehistory that you can eat, really. But people come up with this brilliant solution. I can't eat the grass that grows on the steps, but this cow next to me can. So I will get the cow to eat the grass, then I will eat the cow. Clever solution. Um, they, they develop toward a herding society, the big red blob there, increasing the amount of energy they're extracting from their environment. Over to, to the great extent in Siberia and Australia, there's very, very little that can be domesticated. Um, people remain in the foraging stage largely until the 18th century. So I think what this picture of the history of humanity says to us is that history has been largely an endless pursuit of more energy, with, with some exceptions, which I think actually are very revealing in themselves. And it's been a very competitive process. Um, farmers basically annihilated foragers. That's what happened. Um, People with states and governments annihilated people who lived in villages. People with fossil fuels then went off and did exactly the same in the 19th century to people who lived in agrarian empires. So it's been a story of competition and annihilation. But it's also been a story of cooperation because the process has also seen the integration of more and more people into bigger and bigger societies. And none of these ways of doing things is perfect. Each is an adaptation to a particular time and place. And a lot of the things that we do now, that work really well now, would have been disasters any earlier time in history. So that's the, one of the two things going on in the graph. Um, the, the, what's going on as you move from top to bottom on the graph. But also there's a thing going on as you move across the graph. This story is complicated by space. That as you move down this table into more and more complicated kinds of organisations, you tend to get bigger. They expand through space and butt up and run into each other. And so the Roman Empire expands. It cuts off the indigenous path of development in Britain in the first century BC. The Roman path takes over. The Europeans expand into the Americas after AD 1500, cut off the indigenous American paths of development. Um, since the Industrial Revolution, that has cut off all other paths of development since 1800. And basically, as the societies are expanding, the expansion is getting faster and faster. Uh, globalization is going ever faster. And the result of this, I would say, is that time's arrow kind of flies diagonally. It's going down the graph, but also across. And increasingly, the more recent you get, the more it's swinging across. The more globalization becomes important as you, you get recenter and, and more recent and more recent. So, okay, where next? Well, in the long run, I think you look at this graph, and what the graph is saying to us is that in the long run, we're dealing with very smooth processes of increasing scale. Now, another Keynes quotation that he may not have said, the famous one, in the long run, we're all dead. So in a way, it sort of doesn't matter what the long run pattern is. Um, 
increasing complexity also creates short-run patterns, which are very important, which don't show up um, so much in a graph like this. Um, increasing development tends to create forces that undermine itself. And what this means, I just want to contrast two more graphs to finish up my graphs. This is a graph um, that I drew. I think it's a fairly uncontroversial graph, though. Estimates of the size of the world's population from 8,000 to 1,000 BC, with just one point for each millennium. Very smooth exponential um, curve showing the growth rate. The next graph is one I've stolen from one of Steve Shannon's publications from Nature Communications a couple thousand years ago, looking just at Europe, slightly shorter period, 6,000 to 2,000 BC. But what he's doing here is the dotted line is that exponential smooth curve. The other two lines are plotting the evident proxy data available for the actual population size. In the long run, things are getting bigger and bigger, but that's not much help to you if you're living on one of these downswings. Um, in the short run, we deal with very, very very drastic, catastrophic events, which makes you wonder, what is the next 6,000 years going to look like? Okay, well, um, no time to elaborate on that tonight. Uh, you've all been very patient listening to me, but I'm now going to wrap this thing up. Um, my conclusion from all this is that all analysis, all forecasting, anything like that depends on having a theory of everything that is able to work at every level from the macro scale right down to the minor, and the macro scale. No, to the micro scale, from the macro down to the micro scale. And um, in the, the seminars that I'm doing while I'm here, this is basically what we're talking about in these seminars. We had the, the first of them today, and then there's going to be seven more. But also, I'm going to be talking in the other three lectures that I do. I'm going to elaborate on three themes within this larger theory of everything. And so as Mick was telling you at the beginning, on December the 8th, I'm going to talk about each age getting the great powers that it needs. Um, the, I'm going to suggest that the, the sort of Westphalian solution was a very good adaptation to what a state should be like in 17th century Europe. It's proved very successful since then, taken over most of the world. But can we assume it's going to continue to be a successful adaptation in the 21st century? What will the consequences be if it's not, or if it is for that matter? On February the 9th, each age gets the bloodshed it needs. Um, we, we evolved, like most animals, we evolved to be capable of using violence to solve our problems. Uniquely, though, we also evolved culturally, and through cultural evolution, we've reduced the rate of violent death among humans by roughly 90% across the last 10,000 years. We're the only animals, so far as we know, that have done that. And yet we still have Vladimir Putin. Um, so, uh, question, can we assume violence couldn't be driven out of business altogether? Or is it always going to be with us? Then, um, finally, you'll be glad to hear the last one of these lectures, March the 15th. Each age gets the inequality it needs. There's been a huge trend over much of the last 200 years toward more and more political, economic, and gender equality. Our world is unimaginably egalitarian compared to almost the whole of recorded history, although not, not prehistory. Uh, can we assume this trend will continue in the 21st century, or is it in fact now being reversed? So, as I said at the beginning, the topic I'm speaking to you on tonight, not a modest topic, but I want to end with a slightly more modest conclusion. I want to suggest a theory of everything is not the path to all answers that we could possibly want. The, the more detailed your question gets, the more contingent the answers are, are going to be to your questions. But I do think that any answer we find to a serious question is always ultimately going to rest on some kind of theory of everything. A theory of everything, I'd say, is a necessary but not a sufficient tool for analysing the world. 
And whatever problems worry us, I think all of us ought to be thinking more about our own theories of everything. So I will stop there. Thank you very much. Whatever you prefer. Okay, everybody. If there aren't lots of questions uh, on, on the back of that, I'd, I'd be massively surprised. Uh, where are the people with the microphones? Right. If you could, there's a chap over here. Uh, I'll take I'll take two at a time. If you could just come down. Yeah. Yeah. One here. Uh, thanks very much. And I, have I do I have another one up there, please? Yeah. And there's somebody in the middle there. Somebody in the middle, okay. Okay. Okay, people could just leave it. Okay, uh, can we take the first one, please? Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'm Heide Rieder from Bain & Company. Uh, my question is about now. <laughs> so I'm sitting here uh, up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll stand up. Where's this coming from? <laughs> a voice from, uh, from the sky. No, uh, so I, I strongly believe that the current period uh, is the best period in history, and, and to your question about the 100,000-year uh, question, that now there is more freedom, uh, more knowledge uh, whatsoever than in any time uh, before. So I would like to come back to, to all those graphs that are going exponentially up. While... When they went there, it was mostly unconsciously, I believe, because people just happened to go up instead of down, and it could, have got, it could have been that they would be going down. So now that for the first time in history, people think about these things consciously, and, and hundreds of people are asking themselves these questions tonight in this, in this room, or thousands of people are reading your books, what is it that we can do to benefit from that conscious thinking to even accelerate that curve? And at the same time, and more importantly, maybe, to make sure that we don't get these peaks going downwards anymore. So how can we use that conscious thinking to accelerate and to avoid going down again? Thank you. Wow, well, great question. I mean, if, if I knew the answer to that great question, because I would be extremely... No, you, you've got to have the answer to that question, Ian. That's, that's why you're here. Well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't need to be here if I knew the answer. Uh, but I, think, I mean, it's a great question, because in a way, this is, it would be sort of the ultimate justification of a you know, big-scale history if someone could actually come up with a convincing answer. Many people have come up with answers that convince themselves. The problem is answers that actually convince other people and are true as well. And uh, one, I think one of the interesting things, I mean, looking, d doing this long-term history, looking back over it, w when I was just starting out on this project, I got into a big argument with a very prominent archaeologist, a guy named George Kogel, who's a specialist on Mesoamerica. And George was saying that you know, all these ways in which hu humans have got better and better at doing certain things, but one thing we've never got better at is really kind of understanding what's going to be the consequences of ac our actions and understanding the big forces that really affect us. And I felt that that really isn't true. And I felt if you look back at, say, the sort of problems um, of the 14th century, one of the famously unpleasant times to live in Eurasia, you've got Mongols raging around, you've got the Black Death wiping out perhaps as many as half the people in Europe. Um, the 14th century had really terrible problems. 
If we could go back, excuse me, to the 14th century, we could solve a lot of their problems. We could sequence the genome of the Black Death, we could come up with the serum, we could solve that problem very, very quickly, because we keep doing it in the 21st century. We could do that. The problem is, of course, in the 14th century, they didn't know what we know now about all kinds of things. So if we only had to face 14th century problems, everything would be fine. We can solve all of those. They're very easy ones. The problem I think we've got is that as development increases and the world just gets more and more sophisticated and complex, we get better and better at solving problems, but every solution creates an entirely new set of problems. And we now have problems that um, will stretch the very limit what we're capable of doing in the 21st century. And you know, the list is almost endless. We have global warming is one obvious one, potential pandemic diseases, <coughs> all kinds of new kinds of weapons that um, I have a number of friends now in the military establishment in the US. They happily assure me these weapons make nuclear weapons look like kids' stuff. New kinds of weapons on the, on the, the horizon. I mean, these are problems that nobody really had before. And um, the, I think it's tempting, I find, sometimes when, when you're teaching undergraduate history classes, uh, students often start saying, well, why were people so dumb in the past? Why couldn't they solve these problems? And the, the, the obvious answer is, of course, no one can identify and fully understand the new problems that are emerging all the time. This, I would say, is where the great challenge lies, that um, we are so much better placed than anybody in the past to solve our problems, but the problems are so much more complex than any in the past. Could, can I just quickly follow up? I mean, uh, I, I agree with broad thrust, if you like. Life, life is pretty good. It's certainly a lot better than it used to be, uh, and probably will get better. Why is there so much miserabilism out there, though? <laughs> Because if you kind of pick up what I think is the, the kind of common sense understanding of the world around us today, my feeling is that people think the opposite of what you're suggesting as objective truth. In other words, I don't think most people think life's getting better. They think it's kind of getting worse. They kind of think life is getting tougher. Uh, they're becoming more insecure, not less. In international relations, you can try and demonstrate to people that actually fewer people are getting killed in wars today than they've ever done before. You try and take that before a group of students, they say, don't be ridiculous, look at terrorism, look what happened in the Congo, etc., etc., etc. So I, I, I think, you know, objectively speaking, comrade, as they used to say, you're right. But subjectively, there's something going wrong here. And what is it there for? What's, what's the disjuncture, therefore, between what you're saying mm-hmm. and what I suspect a lot of people actually believe to be true, which is essentially probably untrue? Yeah, I, I would say that you know, everyone who disagrees with me is uh, the victim of a bad theory of history. Oh, right. If you've got, yes. a, if you've got a, a declinist theory of history... Declinist. Yeah, Great, no, I'm with you. Just, no, actually, I, but uh, more seriously, I, recently, I wrote a review of a really good book, uh, and I'm now totally blanking on the author's name. It was a, a history of, um, sort of, basically, of attitudes toward violence. And he sort of strenuously tried to avoid the, the, this big question of, you know, have rates of violent death really gone down or not but it seemed pretty clear that implicitly yes he, he accepts yes of course they've gone down sharply in the last 500 years but what he was looking at was why was exactly this why do people still f- feel so unsafe even though mm. so much of the world is so much safer than it ever was in the past and he was looking mostly at redefinition of what violence is that as um say if you'd lived back in the 11th century or something and you might have had you know serious worries that if i go over to the next village at night someone will smack my head in with a big stick and steal all 
all my whatever I had in the 11th century, steal it all. Um, now you're not super likely to worry that if you drive up to Oxford, you're going to be stopped on the highway and all your stuff will be stolen, you'll be shot. So not super likely to happen. And so what people have done, they, we've redefined violence and we've come up with all these forms of violence that don't actually involve any kind of physical act at all and have convinced ourselves that the world is getting more and more violent. And when I describe it, the book actually doesn't sound very plausible at all when I describe it, but it really was a good book. I think there is an element of this going on. We, sort of, yeah. we, we move the goalposts. You move the goalposts, okay. Uh, I have another hand, a gentleman yeah, here. Yeah, thank please. you very much. Intellectuality, intellectuality at its best, Professor Morris. Um, <clears throat> and you don't have to be apologetic about the uh, purpose of it. I think there are no, m- many purposes. One of them is that to explain the differential development of humanity. Some societies, uh, different societies, have, why they have developed at a different uh, pace. Um, anyway, my question uh, yeah. is different. Um, it's related to uh, Professor... Uh, um, Cox yes, Professor Cox's uh, question. <laughs> that the, the, the pessimism and optimism... Um, I think i like you to... I feel that, yes, this theory probably supports optimism. And you should... But I'd like you to... I invite you to give a theoretical basis to that optimism. Thank you. Right. Well, you've got the theory now. Yeah, a, a theory of why things work this way. Um, I, well, I think that, um, the, the biological component of the story is all important, um, that we are just like other animals, we, um, we have to reproduce ourselves by gathering more energy, we're just so much better at it than other animals have been. And I think a huge amount of history can be reduced to this very simple biological component, um, but not all of it by any means. And so I, I do think we can get most of the theory of the theory of everything um, from, uh, from biology, from anthropology, from some of the other social sciences. I think the tools are lying around there already for us to do this. But I don't think you believe me. <laughs> okay, let's, there's, uh, there's, a gen- there's somebody at the back here. Um, anybody else around here wants to ask a question? Okay, yeah, please. Yeah, thank you. Then go back upstairs, yeah. I had a question. You mentioned that uh, a lot of it is driven by uh, human wanted to use more energy, and uh, that lead to basically more complex and complex organization. And I, I was just struck by the fact that it seems to me that you know a whole theory more in physics and complex kind of systems lead that the more complex we become, the more unstable also the, the system becomes. I was wondering how do you feed that into kind of more optimistic view as we, we drive complexity? Yes, yeah, I, I think I think you're absolutely right about this, and um, I think this. That, that is certainly a conclusion you can draw from the historical record, that as our organizations get bigger and bigger, they, uh, they channel vastly greater amounts of energy, um, and they do appear to get more and more fragile and vulnerable. Uh, you know, new kinds of things are constantly appearing uh, which can cause them to collapse. And so um, I think this is absolutely right. And I think the challenge, going back to the first question, I think the challenge is... Can and it's a bit like the, the evolutionary thing I was talking about with the, the growth of the big brains. You, know, you only grow big brains. It's only this only spreads to the gene pool if it's an adaptation that pays off. And we will only adapt toward more complex, larger scale societies if these are adaptations that pay off. And we have gone through periods when those adaptations have failed to pay off. And you know, the, the obvious great collapses in history, say the fall of the Roman Empire, is a classic one. Um, the 
evolution toward a more sophisticated, more complex, more energy-intensive society. It reaches the limits of what it can do. It collapses. Um, by the, the calculations that I did, it takes a, a thousand years for Europe to return to the level of social development it had had in, say, the second century AD, at the height of the Roman Empire. So, yeah, I think the physicists are absolutely right about this. I think the same principle applies in human organizations, and it's something to be really scared of. <laughs> okay, uh, gentlemen, in... There's two there, yeah. Who else? Anybody at, anybody at the top? Yeah, I've got you, I've got you up there. So is, is somebody down here, yeah? With the, with, no, sorry, yeah, please, sir. Thank you. This is a very simple question. I wonder if you'd like to explain the graph behind you, please, a little more. Could you explain well, okay, the graph yeah, I'd behind? I'd to explain the graph I'm showing up here right now, because the, the, the easy way out would be to ask Professor Shannon to come up and explain it instead. But No, I think I actually do understand, at least I hope, I do understand what we're looking at here. Um, what we've got across the bottom is dates. Again, it's this before-present thing, so it's 8,000 BC to 2,000 BC. And um, on the, uh, the vertical, oh, well, what we're looking at here, it's a charting of, um, am I getting this right, it's the number of radio, dated radiocarbon samples from Europe in... Yeah, the number of dated radiocarbon samples in Europe on the assumption that that is a rough proxy for the number of people that are around. And the idea being like a lot of these big data things, that of course there's going to be all these forms of variability and details and stuff, but the size of the evidence base, which is enormous, 13,000-odd samples, that swamps this variability. And um, so what we've got, the dotted line here is uh, just a straightforward exponential growth curve, if it was just a steady population growth rate in Europe. The solid line is, I believe, the raw number of samples, which zigs and zags very savagely. And then the broken dashed line is a, a moving average. What is it? A 200-year rolling mean of this. So the, 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 the broken dashed line just evens out some of the more extreme variability, like you see up there above where it says 6,000. So the basic idea is to show that um, the reality, the experience for people living through these 6,000 years was very different from the sort of grand narrative nonsense that people like me are spouting about how everything gets bigger and bigger and more complex. That is very little comfort if you live down here and things are, population is shrinking and all your children are dying. So yeah, I'm sorry if I didn't explain that um, very well. I'm trying not to keep us here all night. Is all, is all clear? Yeah. I think I got that. Uh, gentleman next year. I still need another year, but that would take too long. Hi. Um, my first question is whether you do believe in the inevitability of a rise and fall of civilization in general, and then in the ever-globalizing glo ever world we live in, if a single civilization actually dominates the whole world, and if that falls, which is inevitable according to the theory, what would be the, the consequences of this fall of a global civilization? Great. Okay, wow, well, wow. Two, uh, <laughs> two, two very easy questions Fantastic for me uh, questions, here. Eh? So, so the first one, I, I wrote them down so I won't forget. The first one's about the, the rise and fall of civilizations in, in, in general, and the second about um, if we are moving toward a sort of globalized, homogeneous, single civilization, is the implication not that that is bound to fall as well, and where, where does that leave us? Um, so, yeah, the first one, though, the rise and fall of civilizations... Um, yeah, this is something a, a lot of people have thought about this, obviously, going back to Gibbon and, and beyond. Um, my guess, uh, based on what I've looked at, is that um, there is a... Ten now, and now I'm going to start sounding like the Marxists we were talking about before we came in here. But there, there's a sort of dialectical relationship here. There's a tendency for increasingly complex forms of development to generate the very forces that go on to undermine them. 
And um, same with something like um, well, globalization that you mentioned. I mean, in the, the ancient versions of globalization, one of the big things that starts happening in the first couple of centuries AD is um, the great civilizations of the old world, so the Han China, um, the, the, uh, well, India is a bit more fragmented, but um, the, uh, the Parthian Empire in Iran, the Roman Empire at the Western end, um, these are getting so big that they're now um, getting increasingly in contact with each other. And this plays a significant role in pushing up levels of development and complexities. They share ideas and all kinds of other things, technologies, institutions. But they also share other stuff. They're the increasing globalization shares things which have much nastier consequences. And one of the biggest things they share is um, diseases. Uh, the, up to that point, the different regions of Eurasia have developed effectively somewhat separate disease pools. They've each got their own brew of incredibly unpleasant diseases. But now they start mixing and matching their diseases. And in the 160s AD, uh, in the Roman Empire and in Han China, you get these terrible epidemics broken at almost exactly the same time that the literary sources describe in very similar ways. We, we don't have DNA evidence on them yet, but we will, and it's only a matter of time. Um, and my suspicion is that this is like the, the downside of the same process of globalization that's kind of pushing development up, creates these new diseases that very few people have antibodies for. And we see these massive population crashes, and um, you know, people have argued endlessly over the, the causes of the fall of these empires, but I suspect that this is a big one of the causes. And I think in different ways, you can see similar sort of things happening again and again. And uh, in my book, I actually call it the paradox of development, that you, these things all, all come in a bundle together. But you, your second question about, you know, is globalization leading us toward a more homogeneous sort of world society, and then what will happen if that goes kaput as well? Um, well, I, mean, I, I do happily speculate a bit in my books about uh, whether we're heading toward a, a one vast global society or not. I restrain myself from speculating too much about what happens when it goes kaput. Although my, my thinking on the sort of where, where things are going, I, I find it very difficult, looking at the, the big trends of the last few millennia, I find it very difficult to imagine that things somehow now level off and we carry on in a world much like the one we live in. It just goes on and on and on for centuries. I just find that very, very difficult to imagine how we can do that. And uh, so I suspect we are looking at a future that will bring us one of two rather extreme outcomes. And one would be um, the transformations on a scale we can barely begin to comprehend would actually mean the transformation of the basic human into something else entirely. Taking the biology bit as we're familiar with it out of this theory of everything because we've transcended all of that stuff. That, I mean, maybe this is just because I live in Silicon Valley. But anyway, that seems one possible outcome. The other one, judging from the experience of the past, is um, seems to me that over and over again, development has brought societies up to kind of a hard ceiling that you can't move through unless you innovate your way into an entirely new way of living. Like, say, the Industrial Revolution, I think, is a big example of this. Um, societies that don't find the way through the hard ceiling, they don't putter along for centuries just doing the same thing. They collapse in spectacular orgies of violence and destruction. And... Um, if the historical record is an accurate guide, we really should expect that outcome in the 21st century. The changes on the scale we're seeing now have always been accompanied by massive amounts of violence. The big difference now is that we have enough weapons to kill absolutely everyone. 
Well, actually, not, not quite. I exaggerate. Um, in the 1980s, we did. For every warhead, nuclear warhead in the world in 1986, for every 20 there were in 1986, is now only one. So that's the good news. The bad news is, of course, we can build them. So um, it, it, I think that the potential, that that is what I see as the most likely version of things going kaput. Nuclear war, even though we tend not to think about it since 1989 all that much. Nuclear war, I would say this is the big threat. Okay, uh, gentleman in the middle there, and I'm going to take somebody up the top there. Then, yeah. yeah, one down here. Can we make this a happier question? Uh, I'll I try to, I'll try and do my very best, yes, of course. Um, yeah, you, you identified three big components of uh, this uh, theory of everything, which is really very attractive. Uh, biology on the one hand, and, and uh, then geography, and finally culture. And I think biology and uh, geography are really fa fairly straightforward. I mean, biology hasn't changed very much over the last 100,000 years, and geography is changing, if at all, very slowly and probably not very much since the end of the Ice Age. So I think if it comes to explaining history, the focus should be on culture, isn't it? And, uh, well, my impression was that you didn't really say very much about that, in particular about the way culture changes. You at one point hinted that culture is changing in an evolutionary way, uh, in a way comparable to, to biology, but I, I think you might perhaps expand a little on that and uh, enlighten us in that respect. Sure, yes. Well, how long do we have? <laughs> um, yeah, this is something I'm extremely interested in this. And the good news is there's a whole book I wrote that you can go and buy and then I, I will become richer. And, uh, talking basically about this issue, there's a book called Why the West Rules for Now. And it was asking why, um, we, why the nations around the, the shores of the North Atlantic came to dominate the planet in the last 200 years in a way that no region of the world had ever really done before. And this is where the, when I was writing that, it came out five years ago. This is when I really started thinking about a lot of these issues. And um, the, the, the reason I was suggesting that perhaps culture is not so much of a causal mechanism was basically uh, because of... Help, help. There, there's this, this fancy new graph that I've drawn that I now love. I just want to talk about this, which suggests to me, at least, that people, the societies develop in rather similar ways everywhere, regardless of the, the cultural varieties that they've got. And what constrains them is the geography. And in the, the Why the West Rules book, I suggested that the, the, the way the geographical forces work, um, even though, as you say, your physical geography has not changed all that much until, I mean, until the, the current bout of global warming started taking off, things haven't changed all that much in physical geography. Um, but what has changed, I think, is what the geography means. And I was being a bit simplistic in the lecture tonight, I'm afraid, I've got to admit, I'm sort of skipping over some of the interconnections. But I would say the culture and the geography are very tightly bound together. The geography drives social development, but social development drives what geography means. And so that as societies change, and as they kind of come down this axis here, going from the, the blue through all these different other, other different colours, um, what they're capable of doing begins to change. And say, I mean, a place like Western Europe, um, through most of history, through almost all of recorded history, Western Europe is a godforsaken backwater that no one in their right mind would want to live in. It's rainy, it's cold, it's just nasty. It's a long way from the centres of importance in the Mediterranean, the Middle East, and so on. 
That changes dramatically um, in and after the 15th century when development reaches the point that people start building ships that can cross the oceans. Now, all of a sudden, the, the ge geography of Western Europe stuck out into the North Atlantic. This goes from being a disadvantage because the, the Atlantic is too big of an ocean to really do anything with. It acts as a barrier cutting off Western Europe. Then it abruptly, the Atlantic turns into a kind of superhighway. You've now got ships that can sail off into the Atlantic around the bottom of Africa, trade with India. You can sail west, intending to get to Asia and bump into America instead. You can colonize the Americas. Um, the Atlantic, the, the meaning of the geography changes. And I would say that is what drives everything that's distinctive about European history in the subsequent 500 years. So Europeans have a scientific revolution in the 17th century, not because they are inherently scientific people or because the ancient Greeks have thought a lot about science, but because the new meanings of Atlantic geography start pushing new sets of questions onto West Europeans. And it becomes much more important in Western Europe to really understand how the stars move in the sky and how the winds and tides work than it does anywhere else. And a few hundred years earlier, the most advanced scientists in the world are not in Europe. You know, they're in the Middle East, they're in China, they're in India. By 1600, nobody can really say that anymore. And I, my firm belief, although a lot of my colleagues think I'm completely wrong, but my firm belief is that this is all driven by the changing meanings of geography. Um, but as I could go on about this all night. I won't go on about it all night, but I could happily go on about it all night. But I think this is one of the most fascinating questions. And if you start doing work like this, it inevitably forces you to start asking these big questions about what is the place of the individual in history? Um, what does culture really mean? What does culture do? Which I, I just find this fascinating. Yeah, there's a lady up there. Sorry, thank you for the talks. And I believe that you built up your theory based on evolution theory. And then you pointed out the three elements, which are biology, culture, geography. And what could be your counter arguments to people who believe in God's creation? In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Mm -hmm. And so, what would be your counter arguments? And is, it, is there any possibility for you to include the creation in your three elements, adding that? So maybe it could be change or something like that. So thank you. So, so when you say uh, creation, you mean like um, theories like intelligent design and uh, that God created the world and had a plan and everything? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it could be that God has a plan and it, this is it. Um, which, uh, <laughs> You never know. Um, oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm a complete atheist. I have been since I was about six years old. I, uh, one, my, my parents used to send us to, my sister and I to Sunday school uh, every Sunday. And when I was about six, I said to my dad, I don't want to go anymore. And he looked at me and said, God, I was beginning to wonder about you. So I've been mean, an atheist since I was a little boy. But of course, you know, you, you've, the obvious fact you have to accept is we don't know. And I may be in for a very nasty shock when I die. Well, nice get surprise. Well, it might be that God says, yes, you, you got it all right, good man. Um, but yeah, no, I think it, it's, it's possible that um, there, there was a, a grand creator of everything. And you know, what a lot of the astrophysicists and theoretical physicists will say is that we, we can't really explain 
why there's a Big Bang. I mean, even if we're right about everything in all of our theories, everything that happens from the first few nanoseconds after the Big Bang, we can't, we, we can't explain where that comes from. There's all these different competing theories about why there's a Big Bang, whether there's multiple universes, all, you know, all kinds of things that just, just make my head spin. So I think that um, you know, even somebody like me has to make a certain amount of room for the possibility that religious theories got it right. But only a certain amount of room. And I think that a great deal, I, mean, I guess just sort of in terms of economical explanation, so much of what has happened in history we can now explain without needing to introduce supernatural factors. And that seems to me a very powerful force. And pretty much every form of religion has had to retreat more and more or accommodate more and more the findings of science or increasingly find itself, at least in some parts of the world, find itself increasingly just sort of a laughing stock. And obviously Europe has gone much further in this way than many, probably most parts of the world. But so I guess I, mean, I would say, yeah, okay, I, I may be wrong about everything and I may have this nasty surprise coming. But I think the, 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 you know, what we have established through different kinds of scholarly analysis makes me think that the most economical assumption is that there, there wasn't a great creator behind this. But you don't know. I thought the answer was Darwin, but there you go. Uh, but then I'm a reductionist. One final question. Uh, I don't know who's had their hand up longest. I'll, 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 there's a gentleman up here, actually, who's, who's about to push his laptop, off. laptop over onto somebody's head if he's not too careful. <laughs> but anyway, don't push your laptop over. But, yeah, you've got, you got the last word or the last uh, question. Thank you very much for your talk. Uh, UFT, a unified field theory, of history is, I think, quite simple, but I think it's impossible for Oxbridge to agree upon a UFT because one of Oxbridge's main job is to design history and to uh, control society. Uh, therefore, Oxbridge would never benefit from Ox it. You're saying Oxbridge? Oxbridge. Uh, so it's, yes. Yeah, uh, Sorry, therefore, I can, I can uh, therefore, a UFT of history would mean an end to Oxbridge due to exposure. Do you agree that Oxbridge is fatally flawed? Yeah, we, we, we at the LSE definitely think that. We, we, Great. We, we, we've been thinking that since 1895, since Sidney and Beatrice Webb created the LSE. However, thanks, no, no, please. Oxbridge is do, on this evolutionary scale, where does Oxbridge come? Oxbridge, well, uh, I guess about a year. I mean, it goes back well over a thousand years. It goes back a thousand years. Almost a thousand years, yeah. Uh, but no, yeah, I was um, mentioning in the, Australia, the seminar actually, yeah. I was doing this afternoon that when I was a graduate, I was a graduate student at Cambridge. And when <laughs> I was there, we had a number of uh, professors who came over from the LSE to Cambridge. And without exception, they all without ever saying it, gave us a distinct impression that we were not really up to LSE standards. Well, they and got, things would be right. much, much better if they could just bring all their students over to Cambridge with them. <laughs> and so, um, I, I, yeah, I will, will rest with their judgment on that. <laughs> and by the way, I should point out, Ian, that during World War II, LSE actually did decamp to, to Cambridge. Even to Peterhouse, oh can you imagine? God. Yeah, That is a scary For four, four to five years, where Hayek and Mr. Keynes uh, talked about economic theory and what walked around on roofs and things like that. Look, uh, I think we've got to draw it to a conclusion. We've had a full house. We've had a lot, of, a lot of great questions and some great, great answers. Three quick announcements, if I could, before you all run away. Firstly, there is a book, the newest book of Ian Morris, called Foragers, Farmers and Fossil Fuels, FF and FF, How Human Values Evolve. And uh, Ian, if you want to buy the book out the back, this is the LSE after all, nothing is free. 
There will be a book sale taking place outside if you want to come back in here and then Ian will, will, will sign it. Secondly, I want to make an announcement. We're having a debate next uh, Monday, on a, maybe on the same kind of scale, Ian, about uh, is the 21st century going to be Asia? Uh, I'm having a debate with a professor here called Danny Kwa and Leslie Vinjamuri from University College London where we'll be debating the future of the world in terms of Asia. I also want to announce thirdly the next lecture in the series on the 8th of December 2015. Each age gets the power as it needs. 20,000 years of international relations. I kind of thought, Ian, by way of en ending, that I thought if Ian Morris did not exist, we would have to invent him. And the reason I say that is it's so wonderful to get somebody who kind of really moves the whole debate way beyond, I haven't had one, we've had a few dates tonight. By the way, we've had no question from any historian. I think this is very, very interesting. You know, I think they're flummoxed, and I think that's a jolly good thing. But anyway, look, I think it's been a fantastic lecture. I think this kind of broad approach to kind of making us think yet again about the meanings of the long term is absolutely fantastic. And very much, I must say, within the London School of Economics tradition as well, by the way. Anyway, I want you to put your hands together and say thank you to Ian. Look forward to the next lecture. <laughs>